Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, please, to the third chapter of the book of Romans. On Palm Sunday, I sometimes actually will focus upon the triumphal entry, but ordinarily, I want us to begin thinking in more depth about why the Lord Jesus set His face like a flint to Jerusalem. Why did he go there? Why did he enter? What was the purpose of it all? Our focus will be on the 25th verse of the third chapter of Romans, but I would like to begin reading at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Will you pray with me? We humble ourselves before thee, our Lord and our God, as we contemplate the cross and what it took to redeem us from our sins. And we would ask that every believer, because of the Spirit of God who indwells us, will now be enabled to focus upon the reading and the exposition of thy word. And because the promise of the Bible is that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. May we, your people, continue to grow in grace as the word of God is proclaimed. But we earnestly pray for those in our midst this Sunday and next and at other times that do not know Christ. And we, we ask from the depths of our souls that as we have been shown grace, that Thou wilt show grace to sinners this day. Save the lost and continue saving your people as you have promised. We ask these things in the marvelous, the wonderful, the matchless, the beautiful, the powerful name of the only Redeemer of God's elect, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? Romans, the third chapter, beginning with verse 19. This is the Word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Notice verse 25 again, the first portion, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, last week we were privileged to look together into that marvelous Old Testament prediction of the cross of Jesus, the 22nd Psalm. And in that sermon, I said, as I often have said, that God could not simply pardon. It would be contrary to his nature simply to pardon sin. The price for sin had to be paid. His mercy must be consistent with his justice. And so there must be a just mercy if mercy is to be extended to us needy sinners. And so the Apostle Paul in these first three chapters of the book of Romans has dwelt upon sin and wrath and guilt and the question of how can God who is holy forgive the Gentile and forgive the Jew? And when we come to verse 21, we see that Paul begins to answer that question with But now, that's the hinge, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There's a dramatic turning point here in Romans, and the flow of the argument is essentially from this point like this. God has provided the righteousness we need, the perfect record that we sinners need to stand in the presence of God. It is received solely by faith. It is altogether grace through the redeeming blood of the cross. And in a way that is consistent with God's own character because Jesus paid the price of sin, he may may now receive us, accept us, justify us in his court of law. The judge submitted himself to be judged in our place, which gives all of the glory for our salvation to God. Now, this verse 25 is the crux of the matter. And remember that some have called this verse the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith, and not without reason. Verse 25, the first portion reads again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So as we examine this verse and what it means for us to understand why Jesus entered into Jerusalem and set his face like a flint to go there, let's begin with this, God's wrath against sin. That's first, God's wrath against sin. 
And it will do you good to ask why in Romans Paul gives so much attention to God's wrath against sin before he puts forward the remedy. And the answer, of course, is the divine nature demands punishment. Since the glory of God is the end of the creature's existence and God in his infinite justice has called upon us to meet the standard of his law and we have not met it, then God must have wrath on sin. We can hardly know what it means that God in his holiness hates sin, but that is the fact to be reckoned with. And as this sermon is preached, I don't want to shoot an arrow over your heads, but I want to shoot or ask the Spirit of God to shoot the arrow right down into the heart of your conscience if you are an unbeliever. If you are not a believer in Christ, it is your sin that God is talking about, as well as the sins of those around you who have been forgiven in Christ. Self-reformation will never do. You must have a new heart, because there is this absolutely inflexible, perfect law of God that brings us under condemnation and wrath. And God cannot be unjust. It would be unjust of God not to punish sin. His law is the standard by which sin is measured, and we justly deserve God's displeasure. One of the old writers made the comment, how extreme must be the misery of one whose enemy is God omnipotent. And that certainly is true. And that is why mercy is so startling, because God in his infinite holiness and justice, we have broken his law. And no modern refinements will lessen the biblical teaching. The culture has come to think that it is unworthy of us to think of a God of wrath, wrathful against sin, but the Bible teaches the opposite, that it is unworthy of us to think of God who will not punish and does not punish and who will not be wrathful against sin. And the result of the cultural viewpoint has been to remove from among us the sense of sin necessary to see the whole point of the coming of Christ, why he actually went to Jerusalem to begin with. How does this apply to us? Well, Paul the Apostle would strip us of all self-righteousness. We come to God with nothing at all, empty-handed, or else we will be repulsed. It is as if God says, what, I gave my son for sinners and you propose to come with something to earn my favor? You've not yet seen the perfection of my law. What do you possibly think you can bring that will make you acceptable to me if it required my son to make sinners acceptable? And yet still some sinners will say, well, I bring my works. Well, what are they worth? Are they done for God's glory? Are they done from perfect hearts? Do they meet the perfection of the standard of the law of God? Someone else says, well, I bring my contrition. Well, do you think your contrition is deep enough, pure enough to meet the standard of the law of God? And others say, well, I bring my baptism, my church membership, my family connections. And God says, away with them, away with all of those things. They are nothing. Those who come to me must come empty-handed. Indeed, nothing in my hands I bring Simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 
We come empty-handed with nothing of our own when we come to God in faith in Christ. There was an old theologian of whom I'm fond whose name was Theodorus van de Groo. He was a Dutch theologian. And he warned against separating law and gospel. And here's a statement that he made. The law, without adding the gospel, is merely a dead, condemned letter. And the gospel, without the law, is merely a useless bandage. If you hear the law of God, and you do not hear the gospel, then all you hear is condemnation. If, on the other hand, the minister preaches gospel, 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 and you never hear law, then you never see your need for the gospel. And it is a useless bandage. Well, the second thing we see as we move along, and it's a glorious thing, is God's love for sinners. God's love for sinners. Now notice in verse 25 that he tells us, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The source of atonement is the heart of God. And the verb may well mean to purpose, and if so, it stresses God's eternal plan to redeem sinners. But in either case, the point to be noted is that God the Father is the one who has provided the sacrifice needed to remove the wrath of God. And so there's no polarization between wrath and love. The great objection to propitiation in modern theology is the thought that God loves and therefore he can have no wrath. But the New Testament in this text in particular does not allow for this polarization. It is the God who hates sin and therefore who has wrath against sin. It is this God who in love put forward the Son of God as the sacrifice for sin so that the wrath of God might be removed. And this means that the whole problem that Paul has been building in the first three chapters of Romans is answered. Yes, we have sinned. We have broken God's law. Yes, we are under God's wrath. Yes, God must punish sin, but he has punished sin in the person of his own son. And therefore, the law is upheld. As we read in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And God can justify sinners and remain consistent with his own nature. Verse 26 tells us that he can now be just and the justifier of sinners. And this also means that the liberal attack on conservative theology at this point, namely that we are representing the, the Son as twisting the Father's arm to save us by his sacrifice, that's altogether groundless. Never has any Reformed theologian or exegete or expositor said such a vile thing. The Son is provided by God himself propitiation, which means satisfying wrath by sacrifice. Propitiation is the provision of God's own love. And when you read on in the book of Romans and you come to the fifth chapter and you learn that that the Son of God came for the weak and the ungodly and the helpless, 
He tells us clearly God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father sent the Son to die for sinners. Love, love, love from the heart, the burning heart of God. Love provided the removal of wrath by the sacrifice of God's own Son. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, It was love that drew Christ from heaven to the womb and from the womb to the cross, and it kept him upon the cross. It was his love that held him there. And yes, that is so true. But it was the Father's love for sinners that sent the loving Son. And it is the loving Spirit that applies the blood of Christ to our hearts. So imagine, believer, the Father loved you from eternity. And in love, he sent his son who lovingly and willingly came to shed his blood for you. And the loving Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to your heart so that you may yourself have a relationship with God, the almighty and righteous and holy one. And imagine it, you were loved by the triune God. What then can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? I would say that's love, wouldn't you? Love that would send his own son to redeem us from our sins. But now we come to the real core of the matter when we see, thirdly, the removal of wrath by blood. Now, the backdrop of what the Apostle Paul, perhaps there are several Old Testament passages, but in particular, the backdrop is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement that Adam read to us this morning. I remember when I was a boy reading the theologian John Owen, and he mentioned four essentials of propitiation. There is an offense to be taken away. There is a person offended who needs to be pacified. There is an offending person, a person that is guilty of the offense. And there is a sacrifice for making atonement for the offense. And that is exactly what we find here. Now, the means for the removal of wrath is blood, the blood of the Son of God. Remarkable. God was the offended party, and yet he provides for the, for the offense to be taken away. This is a miracle of miracles. He does this by the only means possible, which was the sacrifice of his Son on the cross. And what is being taught here, as it is consistently in the New Testament, is substitutionary atonement. Now, one of my favorite passages from Andrew Bonner's great book on Leviticus is a passage that speaks of the life of the flesh is in the blood. I'm going to take a moment to read to you what Bonner says. Enter into the depth of this with me, will you? Bonner says... The grand reason for this jealousy in regard to the use of blood is the blood is the life. When poured out, it shows atonement, for it expresses the life taken. Thou shalt die. To you, sinner, what should be more tremendous than the sign of your own life taken? And to your God, O sinner, nothing is more solemnly glorious than the blood of his own Son. Earth and heaven stand still when the blood is poured out. By the life is the atonement made. When the spear reached the heart of Jesus, the blood was poured out from the very seat of life. The heart and the pericardium were both pierced, and therefore the blood that then gushed forth 
with the liquid fluid of the pericardium was blood from the warm seed of vitality. And as such was the type, so the reality. Jesus did then pour forth his whole soul, affections, feelings, faculties, and every power of his soul, all were laid down in suffering obedience to his Father. The heat of wrath melted all, and all thus melted flowed forth in that wondrous stream. The law took its penalty out from the very source of life. But why life taken? Why death required? Because the essence of sin is an attack on God's holy throne and his very existence. It is therefore repelled by God crushing the sinner's life. And Jesus bore even this for men. You have slain the prince of life. Yet more, however, how astounding must be our Lord's words to the Jews, except ye drink of the blood of the Son of Man, ye have no life in you. He abrogates the law, for he fulfilled the type. You must live by blood now. You are to drink the poured out life of the Son of Man. People of God, do you see? You, sinner, were crushed under the load of God's wrath in and through your substitute. And this is where the various theories of the atonement once again in vogue today fall short. The governmental theory that the cross just shows God's justice, but it was not really necessary for appeasing God's wrath, or the moral influence view that the cross shows love, and it's really just knowing that love that saves. No, no. The New Testament, the Bible, consistently teaches the true, penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it may be repellent to the modern or postmodern man, but it is necessary for our salvation. And to hide the fact of God's wrath, and to hide the truth of substitutionary atonement, and to hide the the propitiation that was wrought by Jesus on the cross, is to hide from sinners the only way to God. Not a way, the only way that we could have been saved. The only way that a sinner can be redeemed. Say, Hodge said in his great old book on the atonement, a substitute is not a different man in a different place, but a different man in the same place. And we sing it all the time, do we not? In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior! In my place. Now I ask you, believer, are you not amazed that this is why he entered into Jerusalem? Blood and personal union with God. Two natures in one person. The Godhood of Christ giving to his human nature the ability to pay the infinite price of your sin. Christ's personal subsistence associated with wounds and 
curse and shame and shed blood. And that now he gives an offer of mercy to those who spat in his face. And he brings into his family his very murderers and loves them for eternity. Carnock the Puritan said, He received our evils to bestow his good and submitted to our curse to impart to us his blessings, sustained the extremity of that wrath we had deserved to confer upon us the grace he had purchased, the sin in us which he was free from was by divine estimation transferred upon him as if he were guilty, that the righteousness he has, which we were destitute of, might be transferred upon us as we were innocent. He was made sin as if he had sinned all the sins of men, and we are made righteousness as if we had not sinned at all. You are declared in God's court of law to be righteous as if you had never sinned at all. I call that love. I call that monumental love. I call that removal of wrath the greatest of miracles, the most wondrous thing that a human ear can ever hear or a human heart ever believe. Don't you agree? But then we see another thing in the text, and it is God's character vindicated in justifying sinners. So do you see here the problem that only God could solve? How could you and how could I, the sinner, and God, the Holy One, how could we be friends? And the answer given in Romans 3.25 and context, the answer is, we can be friends through the cross. And this is the teaching of the text, but how is it possible? And the answer is the dignity of Christ's person accomplished it all. The one who died for us is very God of very God, as we confessed in the creed this morning, who became man, who became incarnate. And that means that not only is justice satisfied, but that justice now speaks justice, listen, The law of God, the justice of God, justice now speaks for you, believer, and not against you. And if Jesus satisfied divine justice, then it would be unjust of God to punish the believer. The Father made the provision of his Son to remove his wrath once for all for every sinner who puts his trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this is also the biblical logic for what we call particular redemption, or at least one of the necessary elements of it. As Spurgeon said, a redemption that does not save is not worth preaching. George Smeaton, the Scots theologian, said, Christ is our meritorious redemption, our infinite ransom, in the objective sense that he will continue to be so while his living person endures. 
There the judge beholds the church's redemption, and every time he looks on the person of Christ, he sees our eternal ransom. And so I call upon you, believer, to marvel in it and to come again in faith and again in faith and again in faith to the only Redeemer of God's elect. And I call upon you, if you do not know Christ, to come to Christ. Only his blood can make the foulest clean. Again, Spurgeon, God ceases to be God when he ceases to have mercy upon the soul that seeks pardon through the blood of Christ. Now, it may well be that someone will hear this sermon, you will walk out and you may not think about it at all. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to think that someone would hear that he's a sinner and not care, that God is holy and not care, that there is one way to be saved, and that is through the blood of Jesus, and to be careless about it. I'll tell you what my encouragement is. You've heard me mention the Puritan John Flavel. John Flavel preached, and there was a a gentleman who heard him preach when he was a young man. Ended up moving from England to America, and when he was 100 years old, he began to reflect upon the sermon that he had heard when he was a boy that John Flavel had preached and he was saved. Ah, God can still save your soul. God can take that sermon, this truth, this reality to your heart in his own sovereign way and in his own sovereign will. But there also may be those here this morning, and you are truly convicted. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is working within you, and you're beginning to say to yourself, I, maybe for the very first time I'm seeing that I really can't measure up, and I can't keep the law in order to make myself acceptable to God, and my works are worthless, and I I really do have nothing to offer, but I'm seeing myself to be such a sinner. How can I come to God? How can I come to this holy and righteous God? And let me tell you, I, I understand what you are thinking and feeling. When I was a boy of 12 and 13 years old, I came under deep, deep conviction of sin. Up until that time, though I had known the natural stirrings of conscience, of course, I did not understand that I was a sinner in the presence of God. I began to read the Bible, thinking I might find comfort there, I might find the answer there, and I began to read the Bible. And I began with the book of Revelation. I'm not sure that was the place to start, but... I began to read the book of Revelation. Well, in God's providence, it was. I got to the 14th chapter and read about the judgment. I read about the, about the, the blood to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs, I think it was. And I dreamt of it at night. I dreamt of the judgment of Almighty God. And what God was doing in my heart and in my life, He was showing me David McWilliams, You are a sinner. Yes, you've been brought up to be a moral young man, but look at your heart. Do you see the dirt? Do you see the filth? Do you see the rebellion? Oh, how can I come to this holy God? How can I come? And then one day I heard the preacher preach. Terrible sermon, by the way, but I heard the preacher preach. But one thing was there that I needed. He recited, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God took the truth of the gospel right to my heart and saved my soul. I understand when you say, 
I just don't know how I can come. And the tendency today is we make light of sin, and there's nowhere that this tendency is so ugly as in the pulpit under the guise of preaching grace. But maybe you're seeing the ugliness of sin and your hell deservedness. How can I come? How can I dare come? Well, the answer is, my friend, let Christ bring you. Let Christ bring you to God. Let him bring you into the presence of this holy God. Come by faith in him. Come in union with him. Don't stand before him on your own outside of Christ, but trust in Christ, in union with Christ. You may come to God. Let me say it again. If now you trust in Christ... You are trusting in the Christ who is the sin-bearer and the wrath-remover. And by faith in Him, no work of your own, no merit of your own, only through His merit, by faith in Christ, you, you may be saved. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. But you know what can happen is that we believers who have been redeemed and saved from our sins, we too can fall into this, can we not? Oh, I see my daily sin and I see this holy God and perhaps sometimes you begin to withdraw and to back. Don't do that. He loves you. He's proven it. He's demonstrated it on the cross. And for you, believer, who may feel that within your soul, I leave the words of this old hymn. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hast thou, O Father, put to grief thy spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and fully in my room, in my stead, endured the whole of wrath divine, Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest speaks peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. God's people said, Amen. Amen.